this morning, we have an opportunity to return back to a sermon series that we started uh, about three weeks, four weeks ago. And uh, that sermon series, we were talking in the book of James. Uh, We started uh, with chapter one, and we uh, still stayed in chapter one, and now we're going into chapter two. But the first week we talked about uh, doubt and the struggling with doubt and faith and how important it was for us to remain faithful in the midst of struggling with doubt and persevering through trials and tribulations and how God allows us to grow. Um, The second week we talked about listening and about the importance of listening, hearing from God, listening to others and how important that is in our walk of faith. And so this week we're we're going to get into a passage that is what I would say, all is, all, all is the, theological. Um, everything we look at in the scriptures is theological, but this particular passage is unique in soteriology, and what we mean by soteriology is the study of salvation. When you look at James chapter two and we're looking at Romans chapter four, we see Pauline theology and what we call James theology in reference to both faith and works. We know in Pauline theology, um, Paul was talking about specifically in the book of Romans, but in chapter four, he talked about how God determines and justifies one to come to faith in him and through his son. James, what he does with his Jewish audience is he begins to decipher between works of responding of works of keeping the law or works that derive from faith. So James talks more about the evidence by which we would see someone in faith. So it's a response of there which is happening already internally. We'll talk a little bit about that. But this is important because as believers, um, when we look at someone, often the question is asked, do you believe that person is saved? We don't know what's going on on the inside. God does but the works are the fruit of what we see of someone will determine whether someone is really saved or not according to us. So what I call us is fruit inspectors. We look only to see if there's fruit in the life of a believer. Many would say, well, why don't you be concerned about yourself before you're concerned about someone else? I am, um, so is each one of us. We wanna be concerned about our own fruit. And Jesus used that termage even in, um, in the gospels when he referred to Um, the trees and fruits and bearing fruit and fruit that died would be thrown away. So it's important um, that we take into effect of what this particular passage, the reason why I'm kind of highlighting this at the beginning is because some some still are mistaken. In fact, in Catholicism, most would use James chapter two as evidence that soteriology or evidence of saying that justification has to come from works. So one really truly can't be saved unless one is following works. And the works by which they determine it is the authority of the church. It's ecclesiastically different. We believe in the scriptures being, the Bible being the authority. Um, They would say that, but they would add the church and they would put papacy as well. And then they would add in also that one would need to keep the sacraments in order to determine their justification of faith. I would disagree with that. I don't believe that that's what James 2 is talking about. Uh, That was in historical theology, but yet even today, 
I would see James 2 to be different. Why is still this important? Because again, it holds us accountable about fruit in our lives. It holds us accountable in reference to who God is and whether we're interested in drawing close to God. So we're gonna look at this passage. So if you could just look with me to uh, James chapter two. James chapter two. A wisdom book, the New Testament wisdom book, but yet also it can be theological, which all is theological. And let me see if we could look at uh, chapter two, verse 14, because we know in chapter two, verse one through 13, it talks about, you know, the partiality of, of sin and favoritism. But now we're going into verse 14 because now James wants to talk to the Jewish believer and how important this is to determine it because we have to remember that the Jewish believer of this time was still held onto the, the culture of Judaism. And what I've mentioned before about Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and where the apostles, the leaders of the Jerusalem church were determining what was salvation. And of this time, say around the 40 to 50 um, AD or just, just in the first century, they were determining that because the work of the spirit was working in the midst of the book of Acts. He's the agent that's leading this. And as he's doing that, now the messaging of the gospel is being laid out. But they're believing if you are grown up in a certain culture or society or heritage, you only go by what you know. I know that growing up in Catholicism in the culture, Italian culture, we would go to church each week at Catholic church and I would at least hear the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so for me, when God came and knocked on my door and started to draw me into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, it wasn't a foreign concept to see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So for me, it was that kind of world where I was saying, you know what, at this point, um, you know, that's something that I can grasp and understand. So it wasn't, it wasn't foreign territory for me. But when you're looking at this, you have to understand from the Jewish perspective, James was trying to challenge this new believer and the new believer of the way, Christ, that there was something about faith. Now, faith, the word itself in this passage, is not so much used in, an, in a verb, but in a noun. And if we look at the word faith, we have to understand there's a content within faith. And when we think about content and faith in the scriptures, we lean, lean to Christian orthodox. And if we look, look at the Christian Orthodox, then we know that God is one, yet three persons. And so in the first centuries, the first, second, third, fourth century with the ecumenical councils, they were arguing and debating, determining who God is and his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit because there were those who were false teachers were coming and questioning Jesus, whether he was God and questioning the Holy Spirit and the three coming together as one. So the councils were in that debate. But as we're looking, this is still the first century. This is prior to those councils. But as we think about Christian orthodoxy, that was the foundation of what we hold to that we think is correlating to the scriptures. So as we look at this, we have to look at verse 14. It says, what good is it, my brothers, my brethren, my Jewish brethren, but my believers in Christ, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Again, he's using the works, the concept of keeping the law and works in reference to faith. Can that faith save him? Because they began to realize that 
faith or works couldn't save them, so they trusted in faith in Christ. So he was trying to challenge them that you can't just sit there and say you believe in God, but there's no response to your faith. There's no response, a physical response, because they were talking about the poor. They were talking about those who were in need in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Reaching, not showing favoritism, not the rich, not, a, not leaning towards the poor, but showing favoritism. And so here he's highlighting this, and he goes on. He says this in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Um, James McDonald, who is a pastor out in Midwest, so location, he had a, um, and I didn't have the video to share this with you because it would take a little bit longer than I'd like to, but he dressed up um, like a homeless man. And um, he's a well-known pastor, writes books, well-known all around the um, different fundamental guys and but also progressive and he said I'm going to do something I'm going to dress up like a homeless man and I'm going to just kind of roll around a cart and sit in front of my church and they have many locations but he sat in front of the church and at first he saw many people they were showing the video of many people walking by him not even recognizing that he was there there were people just turning around and kind of doing this and they weren't even he was sitting right in front of them they were just kind of doing this And as he set up the video, it looked like it was pretty sad. It was like, wow, how can people say they know Christ and ignore this man who's homeless sitting in front of their church building and they obviously have some needs. But then he he went up front, came up on the stage and started taking off all of his outfit and the people were like, he's the homeless guy. Our pastor was playing the homeless guy. But then he showed the video afterwards. And it I brought me to tears. My wife and I were looking. I'm holding my tears right now. There were people, there were children. They were going up to the homeless man saying, could you come inside and be with us? Here, here. And people were giving him food. Um, he had so much food there. And people were saying, come on in. We would sure love for you to come in. Trying to respect the man so they wouldn't force him or lay hands on him, but really trying so hard to reach him. It was really a blessing to see that at the first part, there were people kind of ignoring him, but there was was the video showing so many people that were responding. But if people don't respond and say they love Jesus, but don't act on it, James is saying, is that really faith? Can we just simply profess that we know God, but don't respond in any way? So he, he starts with these questions, as we see here in verses 14 and 15. And then he goes on in 17 and 16 and 17, but he goes on 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's the word that is used in no other word but when a body dies and goes into everlasting life. There's no, it's useless, it's pointless There's nothing there. It's lifeless is what, it's spiritual deficiency is what the Greek holds to. So there's no value to it. But then he comes in in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Trying to separate the two. This is important now. You have faith and I have works. 
Okay, then it goes, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I mean, James is saying, you show me your faith without your works and I will show you. James is debating here. He's saying, I will show you my faith with my works. Now, I looked at the word show in the Greek and this is what it means. It means to prove or make clear by evidence or reasoning, explain or prove. Now, some would say, I have faith, you have works. There's a separation. Some would say that I can do works and then prove that I am good, okay? I have works over here, I can prove I'm good. That's not what James is trying to say. He's not separating faith and works here. What he's saying is that I'm gonna show you by evidence of the faith that's occurring in my life, the one that's working inside of me, God who's done internal work in me and has justified me, I can show you with evidence and proof by what I'm about to do. So it's not a separation of faith and works, but it's answering, responding that which is already going on the inside. So why is this important? Because our works should never be inseparable from God. Meaning that which we do should always derive from him and what he's done for us. The work is doing inside of us should come out with a normal, natural response. So if God is doing a work in us, we need to respond in a way in which he expects us to. But when we do that, we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not within ourselves. If I say I have works over here separately, I'm doing it within my own self. I'm doing it with my own energy, my own abilities. What, what James is saying is that I have evidence to show that God is doing a work over here in me, and I'm gonna show you by doing it now. This is important because this is so opposite of just professing your faith. And then he goes on to say this now in verse 19, which then he goes back and he goes, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now watch now, because this is important because the word God is one in, in Judaism, it means Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Do we have that, guys? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's monotheistic. It it's, was in questioning about a polytheistic culture of those many gods that were around them. They had to define that God is one in Judaism. And they would recite that twice a day in their, in their prayers. In the New Testament, Christians would hold to this view of God as well with polytheistic cultural and religious uh, beliefs around them. First Corinthians eight, four through six. And therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no, is no one God or no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords that being polytheistic or religious in orientation, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's orthodox. That's council talk. That's creed talk. But this, the creeds haven't come yet. And so we know in the New Testament, let me just give you another one, Galatians 3.20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Ephesians 4.6. 
one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, which is also mentioned in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus himself, 15 through 18, and in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. So we see this monotheistic doctrinal statement in our Christian orthodoxy is established. Individual believers, it establishes us as individual believers. As a corporate church, it's foundational. It's apologetic. We defend our faith. Evangelistic in our witness, one God through his son Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in our discipleship. So foundationally, this is what we hold to our faith. So this is important. But he goes on, he says, you do well when you believe in God. But let me go further now. This is a little deeper now. Because now we have a problem here. He has now compared believing in God as one in our orthodoxy that so do demons do as well. It's called demonic faith. Meaning they believe the same thing you and I believe. Let me share with you. Look with, look with me at Matthew 8, 29 and 30. A demon responds and says, behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. So the demon understood who God is. It's his son, the second person of the Trinity. And then look with me to Luke 4, 41. And the demons also came out and many crying says, you are the son of God. You're the Messiah. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Why? Because they spoke half-truths. You don't want a demon to speak because they're false leaders and false teachers. They'll mislead you, misinform you of who God is. And he goes, because they knew that he was the Christ. Acts 19, 15. And demons also came, or is that up there, guys? Yeah, this is it. And the demons also came out and many crying. Is, is that Acts 19, 15? Oh, I'm sorry, but the evil spirit answered them saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The sons of Shiva, the chief high priest, was trying to do that which Paul did. But why is this so important? Because we see this here, that it's a demonic faith. What's a demonic faith? Now some of you might say, wait a minute, wait, what does that mean that we, we believe like demons believe? Well, hold on, hold on, just hang in there. Uh, a demonic faith is the following, it's lifeless. It's professing only. It's unwilling to obey. Lives a habitual life of sin, meaning total rebellion against God. No conviction, never struggles with sin. Selfish oriented, does nothing to help others. That's a demonic faith. That's someone who does not know Christ as their savior and their Lord. But here's a dynamic faith. Let me just throw this in here. Here's a dynamic faith, a living faith, confessing and possessing Christ, confessing sin and possessing a relationship with God, willing to obey. Doesn't mean we always obey, but willing to obey. Lives for Christ, but struggles with sin. Don't we all? We all struggle with sin, but we live for Christ. Conviction, living a life of conviction. Servant-oriented, still struggles with selfishness, but servant-oriented. Now, here's the difference here. Look at verse 19. It's really important. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons shudder. 
And it's even used, this word shudder is used in ancient magical texts of the effect that a sorcerer wishes to bring about by means of his magic. But one particular scholar says this, and this is what he says, at once more distant and more prostrate than worship. So the shuddering is more prostrate and more worship. But at least it is a response which is more apparently than can be said of some professing Christians who make the same confession. So professing, even in the councils, was not sufficient. It wasn't sufficient to simply say that you believe in God. There's more to it, because even another scholar says this, Mitten says this, a scholar of, of back in the 19th century, he said, it is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. And so what is the difference between what he's talking about in the demon shudder versus what Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, this fear is reverence. This is called positive submission. Their fear, the shuddering, is judgment, negative rebellion. See, when one feels like God is going to judge them, they're afraid. See, the demons, when he responded to Jesus, he was afraid. The demon was afraid. That's what he said. I know you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I know you're the second person of the Trinity. I know you came to save those who were lost. What are you to do with me now? He knew his position and he knew God's position and he knew Jesus' position. It's so important for us to, to gather because professing faith is something that you and I have to be challenged every day. When we ask ourselves the question, are we professing that God is one? Yes. Is it Christian orthodoxy? Yes. Is it good for the church, discipleship, for individuals? Is it good all in all for our apologetic? Yes. But how much further does it go? How much further does our professing of faith go as we analyze, as we inspect our own lives, as we determine by going before God and saying, God, what's different about me than anyone else? Do I really have a possessing faith? Well, this is what a possessing faith would look like because this is what James moves on to say. In verse 20, he says this. Do you know, do you want to be, sh be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Okay, saying it again, useless, it's lifeless, it's spiritually uh, deficient. But now verse 21, it says, was not Ab Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, wait a minute, because people would use this to say, even in, the, in Catholicism would say that he was justified after he responded. So before he responded, he wasn't justified. Before he responded, he wasn't truly in relationship with God. But the scripture says different. The scripture says different. And we know that because we see that. Let me go on a little further. You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. This was prior to the time where he offered the sacrifice, which is Genesis 22. So it was accredited to him righteousness. He believed God. But it says in 19, he believed God. What was the difference? Is that he believed and he trusted what God said was true. 
He didn't just simply believe in who God is, he believed what God said is true. It was a promise. In fact, Genesis 22:5, when he was going up to the mountain, this is what he said to his two servants as he was traveling up the mountain with, with Isaac. He said, then Abraham said to the young men, the two were with him, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He was saying that he already knew he had to place his son on an altar. I don't know about you, but if I had to put my son on an altar, I wouldn't be walking up that hill. I wouldn't say, okay, Lord, whatever you say. I would be pleading with God. I would be crying out to God. I would be looking for signs in the heavens, in the clouds, looking for God to say, I was just kidding. I didn't really mean it. Bruno, you don't have to do it. I was just testing you. I would go and try to find every person and talk to every person saying, really, should I do this? Is this from God? I mean, should I really just go and just have my son killed? But the scriptures don't seem to say that. In fact, he goes so far as to say, I'll be back. I'll be back. But he'll be back. He'll be back. He says, I'm coming back. Why? Because he believed in God's promise to him. He trusted. That's why it was accredited to him righteousness. God made a promise and he believed it. But he didn't say it, but he believed it. And when it came to the testing, he still believed. How many of us, that's what James is trying to say in all this passage in James 1, 2, and 4, we talked about it, that the purpose of testing and, and the purpose of difficulties and trials is so we can persevere and endure and grow closer to God. I can tell you now from what the scripture says, Abraham was changed that day. He was changed. His faith grew because he trusted God in the most difficult situation. In verse 9, it says, when, in, in, in Genesis 22, it says, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. He responded with faith. Then, and then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. A positive, submitting fear, a reverence. It wasn't a negative judgment. He believed God and feared him because he knew who he was. But the demons know who God is. But Abraham had a relationship with God. He was called a friend of God. That's why James said, it's a friend of It's so foreign to those who follow Judaism. They did not know what it was like to have a relationship with God. They would simply follow a work, keep the law, recite a prayer, and honor God. But relationship was missing. Abraham had a relationship. Faith is relationship. It's a possessing genuine faith. It's one where we can talk to God and bear our hearts share our hurts, be vulnerable and transparent and say, God, I'm feeling insecure right now. God, I'm being prideful right now. Help me not to be prideful. God, I need you right now because I'm not acting correctly. I'm not acting according to faith. Lord, I'm not really trusting you. I say I'm trusting you and I profess it, but I'm really not trusting you, God. Help me to trust you. 
That's the kind of relationship God is looking at. And Abraham had this. In Abraham, verse 13, he says, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket of by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, our provider. And on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now look with me here too to verse, chapter two, verse 22 in James. You see that faith is active or was active along with his works. You know that word in the Greek, there's a play on words there. It's working together with his works. You know where we get um, the word synergy? We get it right here. This is the Greek word synergy. This is the Greek word synergy, working together. It derives from a work of faith in God and it's responding. It's a proof of what God's already done. It's a possessing faith. It's a genuine, it's an, so what is possessing faith versus professing faith? It's obedience. It's simple obedience. A possessing faith with God can do this though. It's challenging because it's easy to profess God as one. It's more difficult to live it out. Why? Because it's inconvenient. <laughs> it's not a convenient thing when you're walking with God. It's not convenient when you want your will to be done rather than God's will. It's not convenient when you want to sit back in your lazy chair and watch all kinds of shows and eat your chips and drink your drink. As you might can tell, I often say that because that's what I enjoy to do. And uh, it's, it's, it's inconvenient. Okay, I got to get up and do this. Oh, I got to go do this. Oh, I'm just really starting to get into that REM mode in my chair. I'm kind of plopped in there. Nice. I've got an imprint. It's warm. I like it. And what's happening is I'm kicking back watching the Rams win again, 9-1 and one this year. And it's a really fun year to watch football. But it's inconvenient when we have to walk with God. But it's uncomfortable too. Why? Because God is calling on me to do things I don't like to do. It's unnatural. It's unpredictable. But it's a beauty of submission, faith, peace, joy, hope, love, change of character. It's when God's changing me and allowing me and blessing me. And he's blessing you. See, the Lord will always provide Jehovah Jireh our provider because when we you and I are one in Christ when the church is one in Christ in Christ we bear his name and when we bear his name he'll never forsake his name he just never will that's what faith is about and see it says in verse 24 you see that a person is justified James says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone Again, it's a whole idea of synergy because the word justified means to be found right, free of charges. So what it means is that how do you and I know whether someone's truly saved or not? Whether we have to be fruit inspectors because we see the work that God's doing in the individual is coming in fruition of the external. So that which is happening internally is coming out in the external. We're seeing it laid out. It's a response of faith. It's a response of God doing a work and changing someone. That's why we don't just believe that God is one. We trust in the one who saved us from our sin. 
Trusting, believing is laying, leaning upon. I trust when this chair is here, or excuse me, this chair is here, it doesn't have something that someone came up here and put a little slit here on this chair so that when I put my big old weight on it, I'm gonna break this chair. I know it's strong, it's welded together, and it can hold a big person like me and I can sit on it, trusting, leaning on. That's what the word means, leaning and trusting on God and his promises. Through the trials and the difficulties and, and the hard times, I'm leaning on God. That's what justified. So when we see someone, we're not saying that they must do the work in order to be justified. We're seeing the work already done in the heart of the individual and now it's coming out so we can see the evidence. One doesn't need to work in order to prove their salvation to God. One would only seem to work so that we could see it. So we can then attest whether someone truly is saved. We hear the testimony, the orthodox, the doctrine, and we see a life that mixes in. That's what we really want to see. Because they won't know who we are unless we truly who we are behind closed doors. That's where faith is really lived out. It's easy to even show a work and pretend. It's much more harder, in my opinion, to live out your faith when no one else is looking. And that's what's happening. So what does this look like in our lives? What does true possessing genuine faith look like in comparison to professing faith. What actions do we need to take in order to show our faith, demonstrate our faith? Maybe you have a neighbor you've been wanting to spend time with. Someone you know that God's been nudging on your heart to talk to and to share. But what greater thing than now with the snow coming? What a great opportunity to demonstrate, if you can, to either bring out your snowblower or if you still have something left in you, grab a shovel and just shovel a little bit, or at least try to show that. You know, years back in 2008, nine and 10, my wife and I recall in our neighborhood, we're in a cul-de-sac. Um, I think we had two or three times, we had like 30 inches of snow back then. It was like two times in a matter of six weeks. It was crazy. I didn't have a snowblower, but it was really cool because one of our neighbors did and then another neighbor came out. All of a sudden, we had a bunch of snowblowers working. And my son, who was probably around seven, eight years old, they started calling him the snowblower. Because the boy, he just loved to shovel snow. Get a load of that. I didn't when I was a kid. I hated it. But he loves it. He gets up, and he was just ready to go. And he didn't want any money. When people tried off money, he would just walk away. He'd walk around and just start shoveling all the sidewalks. It was just something he enjoyed to do. But all of a sudden... What did it take, a snowstorm, for all of us to get outside and talk to each other? We started spending the entire day together, just sharing about life and taking breaks in between shoveling because it was heavy snow. But I can tell you that those are opportunities where God uses that. My wife often reminds me too, you know how we've been talking to this one because we pray for our neighbors every night at the dinner table. Is there a coworker? Someone at, you know, at work that you need to encourage. Someone that God's challenged you to talk to and live out the life of Christ. Is it a family member who needs love? I'm challenged with all three of these. See, I just, I think it takes a, a conscious heart, a convicting heart, a conscious mind, a convicting heart, and a committed soul 
to have a, a life of genuine faith. I, I just really do believe that. See, this whole passage really challenged me because I don't just want to live my life professing that I love God. I want God to possess my life. I want it to be genuine. I want Christ to live out in every area of my life. And I fail at it often, but I want it so bad. And so I just, my prayer is that each one of us has to ask the question. We all profess Christ. We all profess the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that God is one, three persons. But the gospel is Trinitarian. And if we have been saved through Christ, we need to share Christ and live it out everywhere we go. Not just within a church program, but in everyday living. Asking the question every day, God, how can I make a difference? We often pray when we're, if we're out at a restaurant, my wife and I, we often pray at our prayer time, God, let us be a witness to someone here today. Let us share Christ with someone. And more than not, often, more often than not, God gives us those opportunities. Every opportunity we have, I want to encourage you to do so.